turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Well, over the past few weeks, we have been talking about Christian liberty. We've been talking about gray areas and specifically the context in which we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul answering a question that the Corinthians themselves had asked him regarding, is it okay to partake in these temple feasts of pagan idols? Not the actual worship of the idols, but the party afterwards. Sometimes it would just be a birthday party, a wedding, a celebration. And yet he says, no, because if you love your other brethren, you need to consider their experiences that they had back when they were involved in that paganism, though they are believers now. This all reminds me of something, and I'm going to make a statement that I think is going to get me into a little bit of trouble with some of you. Chick-fil-A is the most overrated restaurant in America if not in the world. <laughs> Hear me now. I didn't say it's bad. It's good. It's delicious. It's just overhyped. And my experience with that actually may be more so because of what I went through 20 years ago. See, 20 years ago, Chick-fil-A had not expanded as it has over the past 5, 10 years, and it was localized to the south of the United States of America. I had never even heard of it when I was in seminary 20 years ago. Much like, at the same time, much of the world had not heard of In-N-Out. And at that time, I had a mentor, a boss, a pastor, the college pastor at the church I was attending, who was from the South. And many of my classmates in seminary were from the South. And they first mentioned... To me, Chick-fil-A, it's the first time I ever heard of it. But the way they talked about it, they said it would change my life. (laughs) Literally, I think that's a a phrase they use in the South. They said it's going to change your life. It is so good. And they would wax eloquent about how simple it was, but how life-changingly delicious it was. And apparently this is a thing in the South. They even said, well, one guy even said, I take the route that many people do, which is a very normal way of eating it, a traditional way. It's where you get the sandwich, you open up, eat the pickles first, close it, and then eat the sandwich. You've probably never even heard of that. But the true believers, they know that. And so it piqued my interest. So I did some research, and I found one in Torrance, which was really far from where all these guys live, but not as far from where I lived, maybe I mean, this was Los Angeles, so, you know, with the traffic, it'd be a 30-minute drive. It could be a three-hour drive. You never know. I got some friends who had also heard about it and say, yeah, let's go try it out because, you know, I want my life to be changed. 
And I ate it. It was, it was good. <laughs> I didn't walk out of that place with the Shekinah glory like I expected to based on what these other godly people were saying. And the same thing, same people, actually, from the south regarding Cracker Barrel. Never heard of it, never tried it, didn't have any around me, and then I married a gal from Ohio, and so the first time I went, it was a great experience. I was my in-laws, or I believe it was my future in-laws at the time, were treated me there. It was, it was, it was good. But then I went again, and a third time, and frankly, it was actually a little gross. And then I realized something. Here I was speaking to Bible Belt Southerners who are now studying to be pastors or were pastors in one of the most liberal cities in the world. Far from home, far from culture, far from anything they knew. And their view of Chick-fil-A and Cracker Barrel was not just about the food. It connected them to home. There was a sense of nostalgia, memories, what they believed in, where they belonged. See, it wasn't just about chicken or biscuits and gravy. It was about comfort. It was about family. It was about memories and experiences. See, I could memorize the menu and rattle it off to them. That's not what it's about. It's about so much more to them. It's not just about the knowledge it's about the experience and what those restaurants meant to them. I bet if I probed them deeper, they could have told me about the first time they took their son to that restaurant or that one of them celebrated with their friends after they proposed to their fiancé, things like that, memories, experiences. Now, that's a positive illustration of a negative similarity to Corinth and the idolatry there. And as we have been looking at this, we understand that it's not just about the fact of the matter that idols are not real, the meat is just meat because the idols aren't real. It is about what is connected in the memories and the minds and the consciences of other Christians when you go to the temple and have that meal, when you go to that restaurant and order a glass of wine, when you go in for that first kiss before she's ready. Let me read for you the passage that we're in. If you're not there already, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. He says, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ." Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. 
Last week we started an outline, six factors in choosing to limit your Christian liberty, and I pointed out something that I want to point out again. We are not looking at six factors to choose whether or not you should limit your Christian liberty. The point is you should, and six factors why, six factors to motivate you to do so all the more. By way of review, we looked at the first three. The first was the background of the brethren we find in verse 7. Paul establishes that all Christians know that only the God of the Bible is the real God, that idols are not real. But again, not all of them have the same understanding in terms of experiences, memories, firsthand knowledge. Some of them had good experiences as far as they understood back when they were involved there. Maybe they met their wife in the temple. Maybe they did some good things that made their life better. And now they're trying to wrap their head around the reality that this guy is now going back to the temple. Where moments before he started eating that meal, they sacrificed to a pagan god. Doesn't, they don't get it. They, don't, they know that it's nothing, but it, it, they don't get why a Christian would do that. It's because of this experiential knowledge that if you practice a gray area, you can, as Paul says, defile or soil, dirty, Tarnish another's already weak conscience. They're already weak because of their thinking regarding the idols. So they become even more confused and their biblical discernment is negatively affected. They can't make right decisions, especially in regards to that specific issue. And ultimately, in making decisions regarding gray areas, you need to understand that there are Christians around you who once were Catholics, Buddhists, Taoists, drug addicts, alcoholics, promiscuous, etc. The second factor we saw is that the, the issue is impotent, the impotence of the issue. In other words, food in, in, in and of itself is neutral. He says in verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. Is he contradicting himself here? No. He just goes on to explain that food in and of itself is not something that makes us more holy or less holy. So the weaker brother is not somehow condemned by God because he is not spiritually strong enough to go back to the temple meal, drink the alcohol, watch the movie, whatever. And the stronger brother is not somehow praised by God because his conscience is strong enough to freely eat the idle meat, drink the alcohol, watch the movie, or whatever. And what this reminds us to do is to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is God's glory. Because these areas are gray, they're neutral. This means in particular not seeing gray areas as a way to flex your supposed spiritual maturity, but as an opportunity to make a decision to honor Him. How? By loving others. By considering others. See, it's not the food. It's you, it's your mindset, it's your action, it's your lack of love or promise of love. Thirdly, last week we saw the danger of the decision. Again, we're just reviewing from last week. The danger of the decision in verse 9, he says, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. There it is. He starts getting into the danger of the wrong choices in regard to gray areas. The consequences are not yours, it's the other person's, and that's the problem. Your actions can actually hurt 
the spiritually weak and cause them to stumble, cause them to fall. Specifically, to fall back into the previous lifestyle that they once followed. Violating their own consciences. This is not an excuse to blame other morality, things like that. We need to be careful. There is a danger there. And as we get into our last three points, which would be new material for us, he goes into, Paul goes into the more details of the dangers of not limiting our Christian liberty. And he gives us three additional factors in choosing to limit your Christian liberty. Our first for this morning, but our fourth for the outline, is the consequence of the compromise. The consequence of the compromise. Follow along as I read verse 10 and then the beginning of verse 11. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, so this would be the more mature guy, the one who is willing to eat at the temple. The one with knowledge is how Paul refers to him now. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his, the weaker brother's, conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. Ruined. Now he's really explaining what happens here. Not just bothered, not just annoyed, ruined. I alluded to this previously, but here's what Paul specifies, that the issue is not so much buying this type of meat at a butcher, by implication that includes this, but these Christians are actually partaking of the post-sacrifice, post-worship feasts in the pagan temples. Now, as a reminder, this is not the worship itself. A lot of non-worshippers would come to these feasts. This was a big party that involved a meal where the temple worshipers could invite various guests, again, even if those guests were not part of the temple. A lot of times they would uh, invite the dignitaries and important people in the city. So, a Christian is invited to the feast. They enjoy the meal. They enjoy the party. He doesn't worship the pagan idols. In fact, he knows the idols aren't real. So there's no real big deal about partaking in the meal, he thinks. Then the weaker brother walks by. Wait a minute, is that? The brother or sister who was previously involved in the, this sort of pagan worship, possibly even at that specific temple, and even not that temple, it doesn't matter. They're all the same. His or her feelings and emotions and memories are still fresh. They're still raw. Even more so now that they're Christians as they recognize the wickedness of their past life in the eyes of their Creator. And they see this other Christian from their church in the temple, chatting it up, enjoying themselves, eating the meat. And you need to understand that what Paul is saying is the weaker brother doesn't respond by saying in anger and say, how dare you? Can you do this? The consequence, the problem is the weaker brother sees that and says, oh, I guess it's okay then. Because if he's there, the mature Christian, I guess it's okay, despite what my conscience is telling me, to go there, reconnect with all those people, the priests and the priestesses, and enjoy a meal. 
See, when he says that, oh, I, I guess it's okay then. What the more mature Christian who's already eating there, what he hears is, yeah, see, this new Christian now understands that it's okay because these idols aren't real. My example has helped him mature. But what the weaker brother, the former idolater, actually said was, oh, I I guess it's okay to go against my spirit-guided conscience and participate to some degree in idolatry. See, for him, because he is weak, it's not just food. It's not just a movie, just a beer, just a peck on the cheek. It is a significant part of idol worship which he has been practicing, and he was practicing the last time he sat in the very chair that that Christian brother is now sitting in. You guys see the problem there? And Paul says in the verse, he is now strengthened. He is emboldened. He is encouraged to go back to his old ways. In other words, he is now strengthened, emboldened, and encouraged to ignore and violate his Holy Spirit-guided conscience. Why? Because you want to party. Because you, you just had a meal. Paul says, you've destroyed him. That's what ruined means. It connotes utter ruin, destruction, annihilation. And the, the idea here is you, you've made him sin in a really bad way. And it's not just a sin that he, he does. Like, oh, I can't believe I did that. I've never done that before but you're just having him jump into the rushing stream that was once his life. It's not one-off. It's back to what he used to be. And what's the cause of this Christian brother or sister's ruin? Your theology. Your Bible verses. Your knowledge. There is but one God. These things are good. They're holy. You need to have knowledge and Bible verses and theology. In fact, you need more than you have right now. So long as you practice it in love. Acting out of knowledge but not love destroys others. Isn't that why you do it? I just enjoy a glass of wine. I really like those movies. She's okay with it. I really like that it's good food. And, and I even have a chance to evangelize these, these pagan people. Right? But it's all about what I want, what I want to do, I enjoy, I get to do. That's the opposite of love. And the question is, how is it your fault that he's in sin? Because you're the more mature Christian. Look around. These people sitting next to you, you're supposed to take care of them. We're supposed to protect each other. 
We're supposed to love each other. But we've replaced the phrase one another with me, myself, and I. And we've led them into a situation that they cannot handle. Speaking about loving and caring and protecting, I love and care for and protect my kids. So I don't expose them to anything from violence on television to fire on the stove. It'd be much easier for me and my time and my desires to not have to train and to teach and protect and say, don't go there, turn that off, to have to filter everything. But I love them. So I sacrifice for them. I take the time to protect. I turn off my computer and walk out of my office to hold, to scoop back, to turn off, change the channel. Because I love them. And that's what we are to do for one another. Because like my children... Some Christians don't know better. They will someday. But because we are loving and protecting and encouraging and taking care of. See, the problem isn't that the weaker brother is now willing to join you all the while thinking it's wrong. The problem is that the weaker brother is now willing to join you because they think it's okay. That it's not wrong. Because you're doing it. And with ironic vocabulary, Paul says, you've strengthened him. You've encouraged him to believe contrary to his conscience. As Christians, we should never do something that influences another believer to do something that God is protecting him from doing through his conscience. We should never do something that influences another believer to do something that God is protecting them from. And this is the consequence of the compromise. Your compromise, His consequence. Your compromise, her consequence. That's simply not a trade that Christians should be willing to make. There are billions in this world that are making that choice willingly every day. Not us. No self-entitlement here. No selfishness. No pride. Others. 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 There are consequences. But then Paul continues, our fifth factor in choosing to limit your Christian liberty is the severity of the sin. How is it any more severe than we've already seen? Look at verse 11 again and verse 12. We saw, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Ouch. Verse 12, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Not only are we reminded at the end of verse 11 of the significance of that individual you are hurting, but we are reminded of the example of Christ's selfless sacrifice and willingness to give up His rights and freedoms. Not His Christian liberty, His deity liberty. He gave those up for us, for others, the very thing that we refuse to do. 
And to put it another way, if brotherhood is not enough for you to consider the weaker brother, then regard for Christ should. To build up that soul for which Christ paid such a high price. If you've had the opportunity to do this in your lifetime, think about when you bought a brand new car off the lot. All the research, all the haggling. Think about the cover that is currently in your pocket making your very slim cell phone two, three, four, five, six times thicker than it's supposed to be. We go out of our way to protect an expensive physical item because of the price that we paid for it. Shouldn't you do the same for the human soul, the price of which was the death of Christ? See, Christ died on the cross for that person. Surely you can put away that beer, turn off that movie, dress more appropriately, whatever. And look at verse 12. Paul finally calls it what it is. You are sinning against the weaker Christian. Yes, the food is neutral. The beer is neutral. Those things are neutral. But you're sinning against the weaker Christian. And you understand why by now. Then he goes further and points out what you're doing, wounding their conscience when it is weak. Did you catch that? You're wounding their already weak conscience. You're wounding their conscience when it is already weak. We say, kicking him while he's down. The knife's already in the back and you twist it. He's already hurt and you make it worse. like a little girl after she just played her first AYSO soccer game and she lost. And she's absolutely devastated in tears and runs to her father. I lost, Daddy. I lost. And the dad says, you're not just a loser. You're a crybaby too. You're wounding a conscience that is already weak when you should be lifting up, protecting holding, helping. Paul has spoken much in the passage about the conscience. Here he goes further and says you are wounding it. The word, get this, wounding his conscience, the word in the Greek means to hit with the fist, to beat with the stick, or to whip. And keep in mind, he's already weak. So the beating you're giving him, he can't endure it already. As a side note, I want you to remember that the conscience is a tool of the Holy Spirit to guide the believer. This believer having a weak conscience is not because of the one who guides is weak. It's simply a matter of that individual's growth and current spiritual maturity. And as we grow in the Lord, not just in knowledge, but in faith and love, our consciences will allow us to do more things and go more places because we have the necessary spiritual strength and discernment to do so. It's the same thing as a child who is limited in what he's allowed to touch, what she can see, where he can go. But as they get older, those limits dissolve away to the point that most of us send them away to college where we don't even see them anymore. 
But back to the passage, let's take it a step further. If you're still not convinced to change your ways in regard to Christian freedom, was sin against Christ? Before he got saved, he persecuted whom? Not Christ. We know that their lives, physical lives, probably overlap, but there's no indication that he was actually in Christ's presence persecuting him. He persecuted Christians. Not Christ himself before Christ was crucified. He, he could have, you understand, historically in the timeline. But he only persecuted Christians, yet in that infamous conversion experience on the road to Damascus, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because when you persecute my, my people, you're persecuting me. Acts 9.4 Go back a few years, you have Christ Himself telling us that whatever we do to the least of these, we do to Him. Matthew 25. And hopefully by now we recognize that it's not, again, just a glass of wine. It's not just a movie. It's not just a simple sign of affection. There are consequences. And depending on the situation, it may be sin. And the fact that this is sin against Christ Himself is a reminder of something you are already well aware of. That we never behave just for others. Yes, we need to consider others. Yes, we need to love the weaker brother. But our motivation is not solely them. It is for Christ. It is for Christ. It is for Christ. His glory. And though it's not here, rest assured that there are on the other side wonderful, blessed, eternal consequences of making the right choice. And so, in light of all this, now what? What do we do? This leads us to our final factor in choosing to limit your Christian liberty. This morning we've seen the consequence of the compromise, the severity of the sin, and now the clarity of the conclusion. Here's what we should conclude, because this is what Paul concludes. Verse 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. It doesn't get any clearer than this. Paul would rather be a vegetarian than to cause a weaker brother to stumble. And he's generalizing here, probably because he has never taken part in these temple feasts. So he generalizes it to eating meat in just eating meat, not just at the cultic meal. And by generalizing, he generalizes the principle and and shows us that there's a bigger issue at hand, right? It's not just that specific meal at a temple. There's a bigger spiritual principle here, and the bigger issue is your insistence on your rights or freedom in the name of knowledge. In other words, to insist that it's okay because you know the Bible doesn't condemn it. And as we've seen, in true God-honoring Christian living and knowledge, Excuse me, in genuine Christian living, knowledge and love go hand in hand. And I don't mean that they just work together. I mean, the more you study the Bible, the more theology you know, 
or if you come from a, a weaker church or, or liberal background, the more your, your theology is fixed, you don't just practice it in love, your love should grow as well. The more you know about God, the more you should automatically love. It, it makes sense, right? You, you, when you read the Scriptures, the whole point is you read not just to know about God, but you know about God and you are overwhelmed by what He has done for you. Because in the Scriptures, the more you learn about God, the more you learn how much of a desperately sick, wretched, depraved sinner you are, who by your very nature, outside of the grace of God, should have nothing to do with Him, and He should have nothing to do with you. save for what we can only assume is a sickening few seconds that you are in His presence so He can send you to hell forever. But no. But God. But Christ. And so how can you read this? How can you learn more without loving more? It doesn't make sense. I mean, you, you, you learn more about your spouse and you think it's cool, it's cute, and you love them more. And yet none of those characteristics have to do with her sacrificing or him sacrificing anything for you before you met. It's just neat stuff that you just learn to like. And yet here you learn about Christ you learn about God's holiness, His eternality. You learn about His sacrifice. You learn about the wickedness of sin. You learn about the Garden of Eden and the fall. And everything we learn should push us to love Him more, which means it should push us to love others more. They go hand in hand. And any time they are out of sync in terms of quality, there's a problem. Even when it's the other way. When you find yourself loving more than you know. Because then you have the danger of sacrificing and compromising this for the sake of making him or her feel good or feel better. And that's just as dangerous. And so... Are you willing to have this mindset? Are you willing to say, I will never do that again? I found out that there are believers that were engulfed in this sort of lifestyle. And though what I do is far from that, I know that that is the gateway to that. I know just by common sense that what I am doing is probably how they started before it got bad. And so I'm willing to never do it again. Are you willing to do that? See, I'm not asking you, are you going to do that? Because the willingness to do that is so much more important. Because if you're going to do that, it may be, well, I didn't really like this anyways. It's easy to do. It costs a lot of money. Better if I don't anyways. I was kind of on the fence. But not this thing. I really enjoy this thing. See, it's not the particular issue. 
it is the mindset, the characteristic, the heart attitude of love, of loving. It's not even the mindset of being willing to give up something. Work on loving others. Because then all of this, you won't be like, um, yeah, I guess so. You'll be like, yeah, of course, I love. Are you willing to give? Yeah, I love. Are you willing to sacrifice? Yes, I love. You see? Because that's a bigger thing. If you're just trying to cut out something of your diet or cut out something that you really enjoy and kind of force yourself to do that, you could do that without love. You could do that just because you want to please someone or date someone or make me happy or come whatever, right? But if you work on truly loving, then all of those things aren't even a question if you're willing to do it or not. Of course you're willing to do it because you already love. Going back to the kids, you, 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 don't need, if, you know that I love my kids, Right? I, I think you, we can all safely assume that about any at least Christian parents that they love their kids. So I don't think anyone would think like, oh, so uh, if you were on vacation and someone got, one of your kids got really hurt, would you end your vacation so they could go get their surgery? Well, of course. You wouldn't even ask that because you know I would. Why? Because I love my kids. See, love dictates all of this. And as we come to the end of this topic of, or this, yeah, this topic of Christian liberty and gray areas, uh, I want to I make a few points of clarification. The first is that this is not about being offensive or not offensive, okay? Don't just stop at, well, what I do is offensive, so I should stop. The, the, you understand the very core of the Christian life is offensive? Christ is offensive. Right? The, 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 if you've ever engaged in conversation with someone about why it's not just constitutionally, it's morally wrong, to pass laws requiring me to hire LGBTQ plus pastors, they don't get it. It's offensive to them. We are the offenders. We are the haters. We are the persecutors in their minds. And it's frustrating, but they just don't get it, nor do I think they could because they're they don't have the Lord. They don't have the Holy Spirit to guide them. So the Christian life is offensive. This is not what we're talking about, okay? It's not just, again, because that could, that could still be about me. I just I want everyone to respect me. This is about not living in a way that would cause others to emulate your behavior such that they would hurt yourselves. And understand that in many gray areas, remember I started, I said, gray areas are gray because they might be wrong right? Going to church is never considered a gray area, right? Doing something good is never a gray area. We just, we know we're supposed to do it. I know that's a bad example because we're commanded, but you get what, I, what I'm saying. We call them gray areas because we think, eh, they might not be the best, but they're gray, so we do them because we're allowed to. And you understand that if you practice a gray area, 
because of the very nature of gray areas, that it's quite possible, and many institutions could attest to this, that even though you're doing a simple act, other people may do that simple act and then go deeper into that issue, right? Alcoholism, drugs, pornography, whatever. Secondly, this is not about giving in to legalists, whether Christians or non-Christians, and I understand that sometimes it's, a, it's, a, it's hard to figure out. Am I being legalistic? Or am I doing it for the Lord? And sometimes it's hard to figure out in our own hearts. And this is why, you know, the default is we focus on worship and love. We've got to be careful of this. And I realize, I recognize how dangerous this is. You know, many of us or most of us just struggle with this. Like, yeah, I know I'm being a legalist because I just want to feel good about myself. We recognize that. But there are some people who are godly, godly people who truly, because of their backgrounds and the influence that they have had, have a really hard time figuring out if they're doing it for the Lord or not or because that's just what their family's always done. I have a good friend who I, I multiple times encouraged him to go to seminary. He's a, he's a salesman. And when I say salesman, I mean major corporations seek him out to hire him to sell their products. Okay? He's a good-looking guy. He was once a model. He's very outspoken. He takes time. You know, he told me about once when he went to, to London, and he was dying to see the sights, but he was just compelled to go to Speaker's Corner and preach the gospel to people walking by in the park. This is the kind of person he is. But he went to a college, which I will not name, which is very known for being highly legalistic. And not just that, he has a heritage of his parents as well as grandparents were all board members or professors at that college, that university. And as he served at Grace Community Church, the pastor also recognized his giftedness and said, you need to step up into leadership. You got, you know, there's a lot you can be doing here at this church. And he never did. And finally, I asked him why. He said, because I have been pounded with legalism my whole life. I can't even figure out that if I go into leadership, it's because I want to honor the Lord or if it's just because something that my family has always done and I'm supposed to do it. So I understand the difficulty of legalism, and so I want to bring this up. I mean, these, these things we're talking about, not doing them, it's not compulsory, which is why it's called the gray area. If it's forbidden in Scripture, it's compulsory not to do it. If it's commanded, it's compulsory to do it as a Christian, but it's a gray area. But what this is about is about voluntarily, it's a key word there, making choices out of love for one another so that their conscience is not violated even though your conscience is okay with it. Obviously, if your conscience is not okay with it, you shouldn't be doing it as well. Thirdly, I want to point out that this is not blame shifting for your own sin. We are talking about you choosing the right side of gray areas to not cause other people to stumble. This is not a justification to look at this verse and say, yeah, people call me, cause me to stumble all the time and it's not my fault that I sin. That's not what we're talking about here. We're addressing the bigger man here. And we are also talking about a behavior on the part of one individual that leads to the same type of behavior on the part of another. 
His drinking leads to her alcoholism. Your holding hands leads to their sex. Her R-rated movies leads to his pornography or violence. So this is not talking about things like anger or, or pride or being judgmental or whatever it is. We definitely can't use any of these to justify our own stumbling. We just saw this in men's group a few days ago. right? You, you can't blame people or situations for your sin. Those just reveal what's already in your heart. You can't say, yeah, I, no, I shouldn't have gotten angry, but the traffic, but he, but she. No, that anger was already in your heart, and it needs to be dealt with. Well, after all is said and done, after everything Paul has said in chapter 8, the conclusion is clear. Don't do it. What should you do instead? You love. You prefer others. Six factors in choosing to limit your Christian liberty, the background of the brethren, the impotence of the issue, the danger of the decision, the consequence of the compromise, the severity of the sin, and the clarity of the conclusion. You know, I once heard a story that I'd like to share with you in closing. It involves alcohol, but can apply to any gray area. There's a man who walked away from the Lord. One thing led to another, and he got involved with drugs. Really bad. Four years, I believe. Addicted to drugs, obviously had problems with the law, was arrested. and By God's grace, this individual repented, turned from his sins, broke his addiction, found a church. And at that church, he saw another Christian having a beer. And this guy thought, oh, if he's drinking, I guess it's okay to drink. And so he had a drink. And then two, and then three, And before he knew it, he was back addicted to drugs on the streets. Thankfully, God was gracious again and spared his life, and he got cleaned up. But here's the point. A Christian exercising his Christian freedom caused this brother to stumble and think it was okay. And his already weak conscience was emboldened to do what was not right, and he got addicted again. And you think, okay, typical, typical story. It's like, come on, Pastor. Maybe in the Bible Belt, okay, where many churches would actually wrongly say it's sin to drink. But not here. It's 2021. This is the Bay Area. This is California. We live in an area where big tech companies, some of the biggest employers in the country who are just a few miles from here, serve beer in their cafeterias. They have happy hours before the end of work, the workday. People don't drink to get drunk here. It's all about small branch breweries, IPAs. They don't, you know, they don't just grab a Budweiser and, uh, you know, if it's a 12-pack to get drunk. Do you, you really think your story applies here? To our congregation, to this church? You, you know, I... I think it does. And let me tell you why. 
Because that person from the story is sitting in our congregation right now. And that once upon a time that I heard that story was last Sunday. Our actions matter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for the clarity of Your Word. And though Your Word is clear, clear about love, we know that there's a lot of questions and confusion about our choices in life. But ultimately, I pray that we would be a people who love above all else and that our love pushes us to be willing to give up for the sake of others. Use us in this way for your glory, Lord. Work in each and every one of our lives to give us the right understanding, the right discernment, the right love. And I pray, Father, for those who are the weaker brother or sister in this context, that we would be so loving that we would not embolden them to fall into their old ways, but that we would embolden them to speak up to tell us and to let us know when our actions are hurting them. Because we just want to be who you want us to be, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.